Welcome to Present Value. Hi, Present Value listeners. I'm Gadi Rida, President of the Marketing Association at Cornell and fellow producer on the Present Value team. Today, I'm pleased to introduce this episode with MasterCard CMO Raja Rajmanar. The conversation focuses on Raja's career journey across various industries, including consumer packaged goods, financial services, healthcare, and now technology. A thought leader in the world of branding, Raja shares his thoughts about a concept called multi-sensory branding and how MasterCard has developed a sonic brand that captures its identity. Raja also discusses MasterCard's 2019 rebrand and the changing role of the CMO in today's world. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and as always, subscribe, share, leave a review, and follow Present Value on Instagram and Twitter at PresentValuePod. I'm your host, Paul Whitco. Today, I'm excited to welcome on Raja Rajamanar, the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer and President of the Healthcare Business for MasterCard. In his position at MasterCard, Raja is responsible for successfully leading the company's marketing transformation, including the integration of the marketing and communication functions, the development of its priceless experiential platforms, and the creation and deployment of cutting-edge, marketing-led business models into the core of the company. Throughout his career, Raja has won numerous awards, most recently winning the 2018 Global Marketer of the Year Award from the World Federation of Advertisers, an organization to which he was elected president one year later. Also in 2018, he was ranked by Forbes as one of the top five most influential CMOs in the world. Prior to MasterCard, Raja worked as an executive in the healthcare space at Humana and Anthem, leading business strategy and transformation efforts. Raja also spent 15 years with Citigroup, holding various leadership roles across the company. Raja's career began in India, in the consumer packaged goods industry, working for Unilever and Asian Paints. Raja received an MBA from the Indian Institute of Management in Bangalore, India, and a Bachelor of Technology degree in Chemical Engineering from Osmania University in Hyderabad, India. Raja recently spoke to Cornell first-year MBA marketing students during their annual marketing trek as a part of Raja's university lecture series. Raja, it's an honor to have you joining us today on Present Value. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Paul. Absolutely pleasure being on this show. And even the last interaction that I had with the first-year students of MBA was really something which I enjoyed, and I enjoyed doing this. Thank you for having me. Sure thing. So before we get to some of the innovative changes you've implemented in your current role at MasterCard, I wanted to take a step back and give our listeners a sense of your career journey thus far. As I mentioned off the top, you've spent time in CPG, financial services, healthcare, and now technology. Can you talk about each step of the journey and what motivated each change of course? Right. See, firstly, I have spent roughly half of my career managing P&Ls and the other half managing marketing. So I keep joking that when I manage PLs or when I was managing PLs, I would give hell to the marketing guys. So now this is the payback time. I'm on the receiving end, right? right <laughs> With right. interest. But on a serious note, like, you know, I have now 35 years of experience in total. Started my career journey in India. My first job was with Asian Paints after I graduated from Indian Institute of Management in Bangalore. And my main motivation for joining that company was I had the opportunity to start their marketing department from scratch 
as a founder flunky. So we were a three people department and I was the junior most of the team. That I thought was an extraordinary opportunity trying to transition from the theoretical world of MBA, so to speak, into the practical real world and see what, how life is like. A great experience which I cherish today and I learned things my own way. Then I moved from Asian Paints to Unilever in India. Unilever was considered to be the school of marketing. In India, it was one of the best training grounds. And after I spent about three, three and a half years with Asian Paints, I was approached by Unilever based on the performance that I was having in the market, in my current company, in the current company then. And that's how I actually ended up joining Unilever. One of my biggest motivations, incidentally, is because Unilever in those days used to give me or used to give its employees accommodation. That was a big deal for a young bachelor in Mumbai. Getting an accommodation was not easy. And when I was in Asian Paints, I used to be as a paying guest in somebody's house, right? So for a change, I was going to get my own apartment. So that was a big motivator, primarily, I must say. I ended up being there for four years in sales and roughly the same amount of time, similar amount of time in marketing, managing various categories of products. And then I joined Citibank. Citibank, I joined new country. It was in United Arab Emirates based in Dubai. New language, new culture, and a new product category about which I knew nothing. I never had a credit card till then. And I was going there to become the chief marketing officer for the Middle Eastern region for Citibank's credit cards division. I went there. The primary motive for me was in those days within India, one of the dreams used to be or aspirations used to be to get an international career. So I wanted to cross the borders and experience international. And so that's why I moved to Dubai. That was in 1994. I was in Dubai for about seven years. And then I moved up to, through various levels within Citibank. And I was transferred to London by Citibank, looking after all of Europe, Middle East and Africa region for the various consumer assets or consumer lending products. I was there. From there, I moved to New York with Citibank as a global head of business development for the cards for the payment products. And then I was seconded to Diners Club as its chairman and CEO, then brought back to Citibank as the head of their core credit cards for North America. And when financial crisis happened in 2008, 2008, 2009, that's when this unique opportunity came from healthcare. So it was yet another completely new industry for me. And I thought it would be a terrific opportunity for me because Obamacare was being discussed very hotly. Anyway, the financial companies were all in a freeze. You could not expand. You could not do anything pretty much there. And being in marketing, for me, that was like imprisonment, so to speak, where you cannot spend money on marketing and you cannot acquire consumers and so on. So I thought this was a very good opportunity for me. So I moved to healthcare. I was there for four years. And then my ex-boss from Citibank became the president and CEO of MasterCard. He invited me to come and join him. And I'm back. And now I'm in MasterCard for almost seven years now. Wow, quite the journey. So which of these past experiences do you draw on the most in your current role as MasterCard CMO? Is it kind of the business P&L side or the, the creative side for maybe the Unilever days? So I would say it is more the business side. And it would be the two most significant stints for me from a marketing management perspective are my stint at Diners Club as its chairman and CEO, where I ran the whole network and Diners Club as a business, and also as the head of the core credit cards for North America, which gave me tremendous insights into the management of the cards P&L. You also know that I manage the healthcare business for MasterCard. And for that, I tap into my healthcare industry experience at Humana and at WellPoint, 
Wellpoint is now called Anthem, but these are the two companies I worked at. And that experience is what I draw upon quite a lot. Great. So thinking about the field of marketing in general, I've heard you describe how marketing has evolved across five different phases. Can you describe for our listeners what those phases are and where we are right now? Right. So I visualize marketing going through significant transformations along the time scale. At the very beginning, marketing was all about products. So you have the best product, consumer will buy it. The whole basis and premise for that marketing 1.0, as I call it, the first era of marketing, was that consumer decision-making is very logical, very rational, and it depends on actual facts. So with that, you keep on developing better and better products, and your communication is all about showcasing the goodness of your product. But people have realized that purchase decisions are not rational. You might think they are rational, they're totally emotional. So from that perspective, there is a pivot to emotions. And emotional marketing or marketing tapping into emotions became, that's what I call as marketing 2.0. It evolved to such an extent where people have realized, the marketers have realized, that even without showing or talking about the product, your marketing can be very effective if you tap into the right emotions. One of the classical examples for that, I would say, is MasterCard. So MasterCard's priceless campaign does not talk anything about the product. It's actually, in fact, even contrarian. It says it's not things that you can buy with money that matter. It's the things that money cannot buy that matter, and those are the things you should be focused in life. But what's happening in that kind of an approach is you're tapping into a universal human truth. And when you tap into it, you connect with the consumers, the impact is magical. And that's exactly what has been happening. That's marketing 2.0. Then marketing 3.0 is where data came into the picture. Till then, data was more for the engineers and for the economists and it's for the data geeks and data nerds. Marketers were not that, right? They were all creative. And so the power of data got realized, to my mind, first in the credit cards industry, where they would send billions and billions of mailers every single month. And that would be very precise because what will happen is when you are sending so many mails, only the response rate that they used to get was extremely minuscule of people who even cared to respond. Once they respond, then you had to approve somebody from those responses, which is a subset of that. So there was a humongous amount of wastage, more than 99% of all the mail you sent would get wasted. So their whole focus was optimization and they have started leveraging the power of data. Now that I say is marketing 3.0. And I think probably a company like Amazon has really taken it to the cutting edge with that where they are doing real-time data analytics and use the outputs of that analysis, not only for the company, but also put it in front of the consumers. So people who bought this also have looked at this. So it's that kind of a thing which promotes and moves the sale along. Marketing 4.0 started to my mind with the advent of the likes of Facebook. So there was ubiquity of mobile phones or mobile devices, very well connected intra-internet. The user interface was extremely friendly and intuitive. You don't need to be a technologist to understand how to use those. And the social media platforms were there, which suddenly opened up the world and new dimensions for people. So the way a marketer had to leverage this particular scenario was completely different than it was in the previous generations or previous eras. So for example, we used to say there is a process 
for purchase, which a consumer goes through, we call it the purchase funnel. Awareness, interest, desire, action, satisfaction, that's all gone. The whole funnel has collapsed in the marketing 4.0 era, which is driven by social media in a significant way and digital approaches. So the entire marketing strategy has to be reimagined and adapted for this kind of an environment. So this is what has been there, I would say, for the last 10 to 12 years. Now I say that we are at the verge of the next era of marketing, which is marketing 5.0. So marketing 5.0 is what we call internally our strategy as one of sense and sensibilities. So sense and sensibilities is basically you don't reach consumers through one or two senses that you normally, but if you can credibly, authentically, if you do it, you can go through all the five senses, the sense of touch, taste, sound, like all the five senses you deploy and then go after the consumers on the one hand. And on the other hand, we also go through not just what is at the surface, but have an extra level or a depth of sensibility, as we call it, which is going a little bit below the obvious, understand what the nuances are, and adapt your strategy to tap into that subconscious, I would not say subconscious, but it is subsurface dynamic that is there. And I can share examples down the line, but the key thing is sense and sensibility. So we call this era of marketing 5.0 and the strategy that MasterCard has adopted is what we call a sense and sensibility. Awesome. That's a really great overview. Appreciate that. And thinking about marketing 5.0, as you called it, and beyond, you've been outspoken about the need for marketers to appeal beyond consumers' eyes and ears with a concept called multi-sensory branding. Can you just describe what that multi-sensory branding is and why you believe in it so strongly? So let's start first with, say, the sense of sight. Today, when you look at consumers, on a daily basis, visually, they're bombarded by more than 5,000 messages every single day, 5,000, which is humanly impossible to really process. So people have learned to tune themselves out. The mind is a very sophisticated, evolving mechanism, number one. Number two, people are so sick and tired of your ads that they have put ad blocks everywhere. So now there are more than 2 billion ad block users around the world. And number three, you have got a scenario where they are willing to pay money, consumers are willing to pay money to stay in ad-free environment because they are so sick and tired of these interruptions that ads do for their otherwise beautiful experience, whether they're watching a movie or a video or whatever. Now, when you have got this kind of a situation prevailing, you have to figure out, is visual the only way to get into consumers' hearts and minds, or should we actually go through ears? Should we go through their taste, touch, etc., and, and so fragrance? So what we said is, firstly, even visual, you have to optimize. Today, when there is so much of visual clutter, you have to help declutter it for the consumers. How do you declutter for the consumers? Like, for example, in our own case, we had a zillion brands within MasterCard, sub-brands. Everyone, when they launch something new, they would want to have their stamp on it. So they would create a new logo, new brand, new identity, and everything else, which is total madness. So we killed every one of them, and we said, we got one brand. It's called MasterCard. It's represented by this particular logo. Number two, we contemporized, because they say, you know, a visual conveys like a picture is worth a thousand words, a visual conveys a lot more than a word. So we had to optimize the logo to communicate that it's a contemporary brand. It is a brand with a very broad appeal, aesthetic appeal. It has got no limitation only to the payments or credit cards or debit cards kind of category. 
but it's much broader than that. So it has to give us permission to play in wider spaces, etc. So we changed the entire design of our logo while retaining everything that worked from the past. So we had our new logo design completely. And then we had a whole visual system because sometimes you may not even be able to show the logo, but by looking at something, you can say, huh, this is a MasterCard advertisement of his MasterCard material. So this is visual optimization. The second sense we went to is we said it's all about sound. Now, you can turn off easily visuals. By J, you can shut your eyes or you can just look away. Sound is more difficult to ignore. But sound also comes in from a very, very interesting way where sound is processed sequentially, whereas visuals are processed simultaneously. So the key thing is it requires a very different approach. We used to have in the marketing world jingles forever. But jingles is not a strategy, right? Jingles is just one manifestation of one thing that you want to do to build awareness or whatever or build some kind of recognition. So we said we have to have a complete audio branding architecture. Just like today you have got visual brand architecture, which there is a number of playbooks. And everyone has done a brilliant job across multiple brands and agencies. But for audio, there was not a single playbook. So for audio branding, we had to start creating our own playbook. We had to start writing our own playbook from the scratch. And what we are trying to do is, you know, we have what we call as the three A's strategy. First is you have a melody that should be associated with MasterCard. The first stage of that is creating an awareness. Awareness for the melody. You should have familiarity. You should start recognizing that there's a melody. The second one is association. The melody has to be associated with MasterCard. And the third one is attribution, which means people will immediately be able to attribute that this is exclusively MasterCard's identity. Now, we are on this journey. Now, the key thing is the way we have developed it is a multi-layer audio branding strategy. We have a 30-second melody, which is what seeps into everything that we do, whether it is our TV commercials or it is our events or it's a message on hold or it's a telephone ringtones, it goes everywhere. And it's highly adaptable, different parts of the world, different cultures. It manifests differently without losing the continuity to the, and the familiarity of the tune. The second layer is a three-second subset of this 30-second melody, which we call as our sonic signature, with which we close any advertisement or any event. And a further subset of that, which is 1.3 seconds, is what we call as our sonic acceptance sound. So this is basically each time your MasterCard transaction goes through successfully, you will hear that sound. It's very reassuring that your transaction has gone through flawlessly and that you have been in a safe environment. So these are the three we have launched. More layers are coming in. And as part of it, what we are saying is that it's becoming a business necessity. As we are getting to marketing 5.0 situation, the people are going to interact a lot with things like smart speakers, Internet of Things, devices like you know, wearables and all kinds of things, right? In that situation, there is no visual real estate where you can show your brand. So the only method of interaction in those cases is audio. So you have to have an audio form of your brand. So that was the genesis. And then we sort of are getting in. And in order to create this awareness, we are now creating music, original music and not like a corporate anthem, which people will throw up on. This is like real music created by solid, well-known celebrities who are you know, musicians, music composers, and so on. And this will be regular pop songs. You can listen on Apple Music or Spotify or wherever else it is. 
the idea is there is a subtle infusion of the sonic melody that we have got inside these songs in a non-intrusive fashion but it starts building your awareness and your familiarity and recognition so that's how we have been going on that so i wanted to ask you a little bit more about that pop single so i understand it's entitled merry-go-round we actually have a sample of it which we'll play right now for our listeners The question I have for you is, with creating that single and the whole Sonic branding overall, what was the process in translating the MasterCard brand identity to music? How did you begin? What did you think about when you were making that Sonic brand? Because MasterCard is present in more than 110 countries around the world, whatever we came up with has to have a universal appeal. So we had to come up with a melody that was likable, that was pleasant, that was memorable. If it is not memorable, there is no attribution down the line. It has to be very versatile and adaptable to different cultures and different genres and different situations. So we had to find a melody which can transcend into all these kind of spaces, which is not very easy to come by. And probably the most amount of time we took was to try to identify that kind of a melody. And most importantly, that melody also has to be unique. It has to be one of its kind. It should not be close to some of something else that's already out there. And so we went through that research. I worked with composers, musicologists, music studios, artists, you name them. It was a two-year exercise. Two full years we had spent on this. So we would identify, shortlist a few, then test them out, check, check, check. And then it fails. Even the one you have selected fails some for three or four criteria. You go back to the drawing board, start with the melody again. So we would have seen more than 2,000 different melodies during that time. And eventually we found out the one which we thought was absolutely the right one. So it was a very long, brutal journey. And once it was done, then the melody was there. From then on, the journey became a little simpler and we started adapting it to different regions. And what we did is we went to a federated model. So with the guidelines, we would ask composers in the Middle East to compose things in their native context or in Colombia, in South America, to do something in that native context, or in India or China and so on, right? Now we have got more than 120 different versions and renditions of the melody, and now we got into songs too. A full-length album is coming out soon too, right? If I understand, or that's the next step? Exactly. So we have partnered with a person called Nicholas Molinda out of Sweden. He's a fantastic music producer, and he worked with celebrities like Lady Gaga, Mary J. Blige, Miley Cyrus, and so on. So he's a real deal. So we partnered with him, and he's producing this first album for us. It'll have about 11 or 12 songs. We were intending to release that album this summer. But unfortunately, because of COVID and all that, we wanted to be contextually sensitive, and therefore we deferred it to a later part of the year. So it'll happen in the fourth quarter of this year. Can't wait to give it a listen. Any plans for a brand smell anytime soon? I think that might round out all five senses. I know the touch and the smell are the two that are left, but what we want to do is to first get our act right, get some momentum and scale in these three senses before we start exploring further. Sure, makes sense. I wanted to transition to talk about 
MasterCard's recent rebranding. So in January 2019, MasterCard became the latest company to drop its name from the logo and solely rely on the interlocking red and yellow circles. Broadly, what were the circumstances that led to starting the conversation and ultimately dropping the name? So firstly, the circumstance. MasterCard, even today, if you ask a number of people, what does MasterCard do? The answer is it issues credit cards. The reality is we don't issue a single credit card. We are a technology company. We're a platform that connects the banks and the merchants and the consumers. And it is the banks or the financial institutions, banking or otherwise, are the ones who issue the cards. Now, our business has diversified so much from the original days, but our legacy and the heritage is struck very strongly with the past. So one of the things we wanted to do was to break away from that legacy to some extent and project this brand as being much broader in terms of what it is doing. Like, for example, now we, are, we have got five restaurants in the world. Okay, we have got a huge services business. We have got cybersecurity business. So we've got multiple business lines that are out there. And the name MasterCard in the old format of depiction and everything was not really doing full justice. So we said it's a journey that we had to change perceptions and associations. And one of the significant ways of doing it is, what do you call yourself? And we said MasterCard has too much of an equity. So we don't want to lose that name MasterCard. The red and the yellow colors have too much of equity and association with the brand. We don't want to lose them. And the two circles also have too much of equity. We don't want to lose them. So we had to, within the constraints, have to figure out a new way of coming out with a logo where we could drop the name MasterCard. And yet, by looking at the logo, you can say this is MasterCard. We tweak the red, we tweak the yellow, we tweak the dimensions and the distances between the two circles, the extent of overlap. We did some very, very minor tweaks that are not easily noticeable, but they have a profound impact. And then we dropped. So why did we drop the name? So we want to keep de-emphasizing the card part of MasterCard. That's one. The second thing, equally interestingly, is when you look at a lot of transactions that are happening these days, they happen on small screens. Like, you know, you've got these Apple watches and you've got the Samsung watches and so on. You're getting a lot, many more devices with small screens. When the size of the screen becomes very small, the amount of space available for each brand to be evicted is smaller and smaller. In that small size, to read the word MasterCard below that logo, it is just not happening anywhere. So people's recognition that this is MasterCard is through looking at the two interlocking circles in red and yellow, not by reading the word MasterCard. And if I drop the name MasterCard from that logo, I can expand my circles slightly to occupy the full space, which otherwise was taken up partly by MasterCard. Uh, the name, the word MasterCard, and that gives a disproportionate visual impact than when there was MasterCard. Plus, also we fit very easily into different circumstances with our logo. It looks very contemporary, it's very modern, and we had to stay current with the times. So these were the reasons why we dropped the name and the way we have gone the way we did. And one of the most reassuring factors for us was that more than 84% of people around the world recognize the MasterCard logo, even without the word MasterCard. That gave us the confidence to move forward. That's great. And I'm curious, why do you think that this dropping the name from the logo works for MasterCard, but maybe not necessarily for other brands? I think of like a Coca-Cola or an IBM, right? The company name is very kind of ingrained into the logo. Do you have any sense of why that might work for you, but not some other large brands? Yeah. See, we did a lot of research on this, right? If you look at our old brand, 
the word MasterCard was inside the circles. And at that time, we said, if you drop the name, what's going to happen? So we could not drop the name from inside the circle. So we did it a two-step process. We brought the name outside the circle as a first step and then dropped this name altogether in the second step, right? Now, some brands like the ones you have mentioned, their logo is just a play on their entire name, the word. In those kind of situations, it becomes very, very difficult, if not impossible, to have an iconic logo. Just, you know, it's an icon. It has no words. And we feel it's very, we are very fortunate that you know, our brand has been consistently marketed for the last 50 plus years. And consistency is the name of the game without changing too much at all, all these years, that the equity that has been built into it has been incredible, right? So even if you drop, no damage is going to happen. But if you look at the entire payments industry or even other industries, there are only a handful of brands which you can actually get to that iconic status. You know, you've got Apple, you've got Starbucks, you've got McDonald's, Arches. There are very few symbols out there that are recognizable. And interestingly, not many brands have brought in that symbols into their branding architecture. That's, I think, a miss for some of the brands or for most of the brands, in fact. But in those cases where there wasn't a symbol, it was possible to actually do what we have done. Yeah. And as you noted, it's clearly been successful for you guys, right? 85% of consumers, you said, can recognize without the name of the company itself. But as you were going through this process, what was the biggest fear you had proceeding with dropping the name? Because I'm sure it wasn't just an easy decision. It wasn't. You know, you should visualize the conversation that I get up Monday morning inspired and I go back, go to my CEO's office and say, I got a bright idea this morning. You know what? Let's drop our name from our logo. That's not an easy one, right? So I had to prepare quite a lot in terms of logically say that, why do I want to do it? And what gives me the confidence to do it in a way that it is not hurting the business into the future? And when I looked at all the stats and they poked holes in many, many ways, and eventually I felt, hmm, I think we have got legs to stand on, our platform to stand on very solidly. So I went and had a terrific conversation with my CEO. Of course, he was appalled when I first mentioned to him. But then when I explained the logic and how the whole thing was, he got down, then we had to go to the board because this was a, such an important decision that the board of directors also had to give the blessing. So we went to the board, we got their approval, and then we subsequently moved. So it was a journey and it was not just a snap decision that we made. And even a project like this, we had worked almost close to two years. That's awesome. And how do you measure the effectiveness of the change? Are there any kind of KPIs that you keep an eye on or... We have a ton of KPIs, internal and external. So let's talk of internal first. So we have got various parameters, like you know what it's just about not the awareness itself, it's about the recognition, it's about the attribution of the right qualities and values to the brand. So when you say, is this a brand that is contemporary? Is this the brand that is for the future? Is this the brand that is energetic? Is this the brand that has got human kindness or kindness in general? Etc. So we, we track on a variety of attributes that we want brand to be strongly scoring on. And it has been moving extremely positively in the right direction. Also, things like relevance. Is this a brand logo that you can see yourself next to a restaurant? Is this a brand that you can see? Basically, you know, we got restaurants, as I said. So when you have the MasterCard logo on a restaurant, how does that sound like? Is it something which you'll throw up on? Or is it something which you say, wow, this is... It's cool. It fits. It seems okay. It seems natural. So we had to do those kind of internal metrics on one side. Externally, we have been having, and those I can talk more freely, 
like, for example, there is a study which is done by YNR. We don't commission it. We have nothing to do with it. It's called Brand Asset Valuator. In Brand Asset Valuator, we are growing three to four times stronger in our brand strength than all of my competitors, in fact. So that's one thing which is very good. Number two, there are third-party rankings like Brand Z, which is done by Billward Brown. So a few years back, we were at number 87 in the ranks of the top 100 brands. Today, we are at number 12 globally, and we are at number eight in the United States, which is by far the most competitive market. So we are moving our brand in the right direction from that. Last year, Interbrand, again, we don't deal with Interbrand. It's a different company from Omnicom Group. So Interbrand had actually done a study. They do every Interbrand brand rate rankings. And last year, we were ranked as the fastest growing brand across all categories, not just in payments or in finance, but across all the categories. So that's, that's again, an external validation. So when you get internal scores showing you the right things and external validation happening, then you know you're on the right track and that your strategy is working. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. So I wanted to close with a few questions about the job of a CMO in today's world. You've published numerous articles and spoken frequently about the changing role of the CMO. And we've seen over the last few years that more companies like Taco Bell and Johnson & Johnson are going so far as to eliminate the CMO position, while on the other hand, Coca-Cola just brought back the CMO role in 2019. Why are companies suddenly having a panic moment around CMOs? So, like I told you, when marketing is going from one era to another era, the question is, are marketers, are CMOs able to transition their company strategies successfully through those eras or not? So when you get into the era of social media, the data, the artificial intelligence coming in, and all kinds of technologies being thrown at you, have marketers transitioned to this new world or not? Now, what happens is many of the marketers, by the time they reach the CMO's role, they are past their prime in terms of learning. But after they have reached that stage of the world has completely gone a change, they have to educate, re-educate themselves to make sure that they are contemporary. Because many of the marketers have come through the creative route, they are not very tech savvy. They don't understand data. Now, these are the two wheels that will propel the company into the future, data and technology. And if you're not on top of it, you're not in a good shape. And when your CEO and the CFO, who are under constant pressure to deliver quarterly results, ask you, the CMO, my dear CMO, we are giving you a boatload of money. What exactly have you contributed to the bottom line or the top line of the company? And if you give some fluffy marketing jargon in response, they lose patience. Right, And you lose credibility, not just for yourself, but for your whole function. I think that has been one huge problem. Marketers have not contemporized themselves on the one hand. Number two, they're not comfortable in data technology. And that is one significant reason why you are finding the CFOs and the CEOs are, say, are questioning the role. I'm very grateful for a company like Coca-Cola to have brought back because I think after eliminating that role for a short while, hopefully they have felt the vacuum and realized the value and then brought it back again. But whatever be their reasons, it's all conjecture from outside. I'm really delighted that they brought back. But that's not true for many other companies. And in that kind of situation, marketing is going through, in my mind, a little bit of an existential crisis. And the time is now to really bring back the glory, the gravitas of marketing back. And that is one of the mission that I am on in my role as the president of World Federation of Advertisers 
where I'm saying we need to bring the gravitas and the glory of marketing back. And my university lectures, essentially, series is a small part of that effort as well. And along those lines, before we go, part of the reason we're speaking today is in connection with an initiative you recently launched called the CMO Code. Can you tell us a little bit more about the CMO Code and what it entails? CMO Code is basically all about evangelizing marketing and supporting marketers around the world. So what happens is, on the one hand, we are trying to figure out how do we connect with all the marketing community, whether it is students like yourselves, or it is the professors, and helping the professors with case studies, having on-the-job shadowing of the professors. The professors, when they graduated out of an industry and moved into academics, the world was very different than it is today. So I think it's it's our obligation to bring them back Let them shadow and see what's the life of a CMO today like. How is marketing performing today like? So that's one part of it. So we are reaching out to professors. Then we are reaching out to students and trying to inspire them and get them reignited in terms of their interest in marketing. Then we are collaborating as an industry to put best practices together. So And say, for example, if we have got COVID or any other crisis, how should marketing be done during crisis? So we put out a brochure. And then people can go through that and understand. And so it's like almost like a resource that they have got available to them. What we're trying to do is to surround the marketing people with resources, with a support network, and give them the exposure to the latest and the greatest. And I'm doing it both in my capacity as a CMO of MasterCard, where I'm doing an outreach to my clients and prospects and trying to help whichever way I can to them to make them successful. Because our own business model is, If they are successful, we automatically become successful. Then putting my other hat, which is uh, from the World Federation of Advertisers and also my membership with the ANA, trying to really build something for the entire marketing community, irrespective of whether they are my competitors or not. It's for the love of the craft and for the future of the craft, which I really love it, uh, marketing. So that's what we have been trying to do. And all this, I call it as a CMO board for the future. It's really great. Well, Raja, it was great chatting with you today. Thanks so much for joining us on Present Value. Thank you very much, Paul. Great talking to you too. And good luck and stay safe. The Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by Serena Alavia and Matt Douglas. I'm your host for this episode, Paul Whitco. Music by Poddington Bear. Logo by Kalechi Pamongo. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.